We are in the book of Proverbs uh, this summer, in case you're new here with us. Uh, the book of Proverbs is in the Old Testament, and uh, it's, as it sounds, uh, a bunch of Proverbs uh, about life. And so uh, it's God's wisdom for all of life, uh, every aspect of it. And we've been hitting sort of different topics as we've gone through the summer. Uh, today we find ourselves at a topic that uh, you may be surprised to find in the Bible. Uh, if you're new here with us, it, it may be, I didn't think that maybe the topic of sex would be one that's in the Bible. It's actually in there quite a bit. Uh, Proverbs itself has a number of chapters devoted solely to the issues of sexual ethics and sexual sin. Uh, we have um, in the, I mean, the commandments themselves, right? We have the injunction not to commit adultery. We have in the New Testament all sorts of uh, commands by Jesus about what it means to live uh, a sexually immoral life and one that is uh, in keeping with his commands. So it's all over the Bible, and that's why we're going to get into it today, because it's also all over Proverbs. But we wanted, you might wonder, why is that? I mean, that seems like something that should be private, something that we shouldn't be talking about here. Why is there so much sex in the Bible? Well, two reasons as we get into it. Number one, God wants for us to have an abundant life. That's why he sent Jesus, that we would have life and life abundantly, a satisfied, enjoyable life. And so that includes every aspect of life, and we should seek his wisdom to know about every aspect of life, including human sexuality. That's why it's there in the Bible to begin with. And secondly, you may not have thought of this, but sex was God's idea. He invented it. He came up with the whole thing. And so it would make sense for us as human beings, if we want to know, you know what God's wisdom for, the best way to live a life, that we would, we would go to him, that the source. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, parents, I give you a heads up in our weekly email that this was going to be our topic. So uh, it's your you know, decision about the age of your kids and whether this is going to be good for them. There's going to be nothing explicit, but we're going to be candid and frank. I do think this is a really helpful topic for our young people, our youth and preteens, and for all of us. So our plan is to go through all of chapter 5. If you have a Bible, you can turn there now. We're going to do it in three points. Uh, first, looking at sexual folly, uh, foolishness, then sexual healing, and then sexual wisdom, and, uh, and we're going to dive in. So take a deep breath. It's going to be good. <laughs> first point, sexual folly destroys. So let's look at the first couple verses, and we see kind of the context here. Uh, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 says this, uh, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. So we see right away what we should know by now about Proverbs. This is from a father to his son. He's teaching him about life, about every aspect of life, including, including sex. Now, uh, this is obviously sp specifically from a father to a son, uh, but there are a lot of Proverbs that seem gender-specific, but actually the principle, the biblical principle, is one that applies to both men and women, boys and girls. And that's what we're going to find here. It's written from a father to a son, but it really is, is for all of us, uh, regardless of our gender. Now, we see here that the father is entreating his son to listen. Uh, and we, we know why that is, really, because the father knows things that the son does not. He, he has wisdom that he wants to pass on. He wants for his son to, to have understanding and knowledge. And that's because the father knows that the world his son is growing up into is one that is that is filled with dangers of every kind, sin of every kind, including sexual sin. And so he wants to help warn his son about the pitfalls that will come as he grows older. 
And, and we, he gives us one particular image, his son and us, one particular image in terms of uh, being wary and being aware of what is to come. And we see this in the next few verses. So we're going to read verses 3 to 6. He says, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. So the picture he gives here is of the danger of sexual sin, and he wants to make it more concrete So he gives the image of a forbidden woman. Now, this is both a metaphor meant to represent kind of all all the potential sexual sin, but also it's it's real. There are real women that might entice his son. Now, the question we probably should ask is, why is she forbidden? What, what, What is it about her that makes her forbidden? And the answer is that she is not his wife. The very clear teaching from the Bible, throughout the Bible, from beginning to end, is that the only right place to express one's sexuality is in marriage. We see this from the creation story with Adam and Eve, husband and wife, that come together as one flesh. We see this in the seventh commandment, where we say, you you shall not commit adultery. And again, we see this in Jesus' teaching, when he teaches about sexual morality, sexual ethics, marriage. All of this is rooted in the the founding principle that there is one good place to express one's sexuality. So this seductive, sexually immoral woman is a stand-in for all of those that would seek to lure us into sexual sin. So this is not just a warning for young men, clearly it's to this this son, but also for young women. Uh, I remember um, a young woman I knew in in college. Uh, She was a woman who, she struggled with this this aspect. She was a a committed follower of Christ, but, but this, was, this was something that she really struggled with. She was sexually active. She, she really clearly got a lot of validation from men, from their attention, from their physical attention. But as I got to know her story, I, I came to understand that all of this began for her in her teen years when she worked at a restaurant. And there was an older man who sort of befriended her. Uh, they started going out. He really seduced her and corrupted her introduced her to all manner of sexual sin that then became her norm. See, as a a quick note to parents, we need to be clear. What what King Solomon is doing here in the Proverbs, this is our job. We are to find ways to protect our our sons and daughters from those that would want to corrupt them. And so as a a resource for you, there are two books that I want to suggest. I'm going to put them up here, both by Dennis Rainey, who leads Family Life Today Ministries, the first one is called the Interviewing Your Daughter's Date, and uh, he has, I think, three or four daughters, and over the years, he would make a practice of interviewing his daughter's date before they would go on any dates, and so he put all those questions together and kind of the standards that he sets, very helpful. The follow-up book is uh, Aggressive Girls, Clueless Boys. He had a lot of parents write it and say, this is great for my daughters, but what about my sons? There are some girls in their school, There's, I need to help protect them, and so both of these books, they're not very long, they're very helpful. You can find them on Amazon. Uh, I I recommend them to you highly. So back to our passage. The key image to understanding the danger and deception of sexual sin is is honey. You see that there in the text. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. But notice it's not just regular honey. This is honey that is laced with a bitter poison. Verse 4 says, But in the end she is bitter as wormwood. This is a simple and very clear image. What it's telling us is that it's not, 
It's not wise to judge things based on our short-term experience with them. We need to think long-term. We need to consider the, the aftertaste. Because there's something that may seem sweet in the moment, but in time, it's not sweet at all. Something like that, a food like that, we would say, that, that's not good. Don't have that honey. That honey is going to make you sick to your stomach. It's horrible. The challenge is in, in being able to see the two. Because when it comes to, to our sex lives, when it comes to the world, there are many seemingly sweet experiences. I mean, you can imagine some of them. We see them all the time, every day. Uh, the girl, for example, that's been flirting with you at school and starts sending you lots of text messages, starts sending you revealing text messages. That seems sweet in the moment. The really nice guy at work who clearly has no interest in the things of God but seems really, really interested in you, that, that seems sweet in the moment, doesn't it? The romance novel that gets your adrenaline going, of course, the countless websites devoted to porn and all other manual um, measure of sexual sin, all of that, they seem sweet in the moment. But what Proverbs is pushing us to, to ask, the question it wants us to ask is, will this be sweet in the long term? Or will it turn bitter? Will it disappoint? Will it destroy us? See, the truth is that the world and our lives, it's, we're full of the bitterness of sexual sin. There's the bitter betrayal of the guy who smooth-talked his way into your life and into your bed, and then you haven't heard from him since. There's the bitter heartache of watching your marriage and family fall apart after an affair. There's the bitter self-loathing that floods your mind and your heart after spending another night online looking at things that you know you shouldn't. And the crazy thing is that even though those experiences are all bitter and all hurtful, we keep going back to the same jar of honey. We keep thinking, maybe it'll be better this time. Maybe the, the sweetness will last. Maybe it'll turn out differently. But it never does. And the truth is that it's, it's more than just disappointment and heartache. If you look at, at what the Father says about this woman, it's much more serious than that. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. See, here what he's saying is that the bitterness of of sexual sin is ultimately, inescapably, a spiritual bitterness. And that's because sin, sin always deceives, it always entices, and it always leads us to a place of great darkness, far from the blessing of God. A path which ends in the condemnation for our sin. That, that word sheol is translated in the New Testament as hell. So what he's saying is this woman, if you follow her path, you will be on a pathway that is that is darker and darker, away from God, where ultimately, if you do not do anything with that sin, you will, it will end in condemnation for you. Which is why the father, he ratchets up the warnings. He kind of doubles down. Look at the next section of verses, verses 7 to 11. He says, And now, O sons, so he kind of broadens it, And now, O sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. And do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. So again, he's being very practical. He knows young men. He's saying to his son, look, I, I, know, it's, I know it feels good when a pretty girl smiles at you. 
I, I know when, when a woman smiles at you, when she gives you attention, man, that feels so sweet. But what I want you to see is that that leads, if she's not your wife, if she doesn't believe in God's wisdom, she's going to lead you to a place of great bitterness. It's so hard for us to see this. You can tell the father so wants his son to make this connection so that he will not endure some of the great consequences we see there. There are always consequences. And we always minimize them when when we're in the moment of sweetness. I was meeting with a man a few years ago who had had an affair with a woman from work. He was enjoying the sweetness of it. He was hard-hearted and blind to the bitterness that would come. And it did come. His wife found out. She separated from him. He lost his his wife and his his kids, but he was still hard-hearted. He thought, well, I'm just going to make a a new life with this new woman. And so he left his family, moved in with his other woman, and it continued to be sweet for about five seconds. And then it fell apart. And because she was involved with him at work, his his work fell apart. And before long, he realized that that he was alone, that, that he didn't have a job, and he began to sink into further and further depression. See, what this father is saying to his son is not metaphoric. It's not just scare tactics. He's not just trying to say, look, don't, don't do this. Some bad things will happen somewhere, somehow. He's saying this, this always works out this way. That there is, there's never greater satisfaction when you depart from God's wisdom. You can see the way that he's talking about things there. He talks about your flesh and body being consumed. There's some of the negative health consequences. The labors of your house going to a foreigner. Talks about the financial consequences of of lawyer fees and and alimony. Really what he's saying to his son is, it's not about control. It's about protection. God's sexual ethics is not trying to just conform us and control us and to kind of hamstring us so that we don't really enjoy ourselves. He's trying to protect us. You look at the main point of advice that he gives. His main command here in verse 8, he says, keep your way far from her. Do not go near her house. So simple. So simple that it seems kind of naive. You can imagine a teenager saying to their mom and dad, so that's, that's the answer? Just stay away from the bad boy, stay away from the bad girl, and everything will be fine? This advice is not naive. It's life-giving. It can literally save your life and your faith to simply not put yourself in a position where you'd be tempted. In fact, the only reason you wouldn't heed this advice is if you underestimate the danger of sexual sin. I mean, it, it's, it's utter foolishness to think that sin will not destroy us, and yet that's, that's the way that we think all the time. Let me give you an example of how utterly foolish this is. Um, this is an illustration. In our neighborhood, uh, these days, there's a bear. Maybe in your neighborhood as well. We live near Greenbelt, and so there's a bear. He's eating because winter's coming. So very often at night, uh, just before bed, Don and I will hear kind of rumblings in the neighbor's yard because they have a crabapple tree, and the bear every year comes and punches a hole through a neighbor's fence, then he fixes it. Same thing happens. So sure enough, last little while, see rumblings. My neighbor comes out. He's yelling at him. The bear's there munching uh, crab apples. So, so imagine if we were in the lobby, and someone asked how things were going uh, in the family. I said, man, you you would not believe this. I'd really, I'd really appreciate your prayers. We've had three close calls with our kids and the bear in our neighborhood. And you're like, what happened? Well, the, the bear chased our kids out of the yard, up, up the stairs, 
Three times this week. Three times. Where, where were your kids? Well, they were, they were in the neighbor's yard. What, what were they doing there? Well, they, you know, they like to have crabapple fights. So they, you know, they go and they get the overripe fruit. They smush it on each other. They're just kids being kids. Just fun, right? And the bear chased them three times. I'd really appreciate your prayers. In fact, if you could put that on your prayer list, that'd be great. Because I'm worried about tonight. It might happen again. You'd say, what are you talking about? Get the kids out of the yard. Why are they in the yard? That's where the bear is. See, it's foolish. But do you know that that's how we talk about some of the temptations we have towards sexual sin? Here's a couple of examples. Imagine two guys. Uh, one guy says to the other, man, I really need, really appreciate uh, your help. I've got this problem at work. There's this woman and she's, I mean, she's part of the office, she's part of the team, but she's really flirting with me a lot. And I don't know, I've started to think about her and fantasize about her a bit and I'm worried about this ruining my marriage. I'm not sure what to do. And his friend says, well, how does it happen? Well, she comes and she, she flirts with me like three or four times a day and we're in the same office. I feel like I'm behind, between a rock and a hard place. And his friend says, let me, let me get this straight. You're working at your desk with your head down, typing away, and she comes over, she interrupts you three or four times a day to flirt with you? Well, kind of, I mean... Her, her desk's on the way to the coffee room. So sometimes, you know, I stop by just to say hi. And sometimes we end up sitting at the same table for lunch. So then we end up, you know, I don't, I don't know what to do. Well, how about you keep your way far from her? How about you don't go near her desk? How about you risk being rude for the sake of your marriage? Don't be a fool. I got one more. <laughs> so imagine two, two girls, two young adults, they're talking to young women. And uh, the young woman is saying to her friend, look... Man, I'd really appreciate your help. I don't know what to do. My boyfriend and I were really struggling to maintain sexual purity. Like we're just, it feels like every time we go on a date, we we go too far. and, And her friend says, well, how does it happen? Well, we just, you know, we can't keep our hands off each other. I don't know, this whole idea of not having sex before marriage seems crazy, seems ludicrous. And her friend says, okay, so let me get this straight. Every date, every date. So it's the middle of the day. You're in a public place and you have your hands all over each other. That's what happens. Well, not exactly. I mean, it's usually after midnight at my boyfriend's, you know, place alone laying on his bed. That's usually where it happens. Oh, oh, that's where it happens. So, so maybe if you were to keep your way far from her, maybe that would help. So you can use this principle for all sorts of things. You can keep your way far from certain movies, certain websites, certain parties, certain people, certain thoughts, certain fantasies. This is really helpful advice but it requires that we see the the danger of sexual sin, that we don't underestimate it, and that we don't overestimate our ability to resist it. See, when we start thinking that it's no big deal or that we can handle it, we are embracing the foolishness of the world. And we do that because we think, well, it's going to be sweeter this time. It's not going to be much of a big deal this time. And, And I think that for those of us who are believers, at the back of our mind, we're thinking, well, look, God's going to forgive us anyway, Right? I mean, no matter what happens, how far I go, I I can always go back and and repent, and I do, and I feel bad about it. Uh, In response to that, I want to read you a quote from a pastor from the UK, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this, Be careful how you treat God, my friends. You may say to yourself, I can sin against God, and then, of course, I can repent and go back and find God whenever I want Him. You try it, and you will sometimes find that not only can you not find God, but that you do not even want to. You will be aware of a terrible hardness of heart. 
See, the danger of sexual sin is the same danger as all sin. That as we give ourselves over to it, we begin to care less and less about the holiness of God, about honoring him, about doing things God's way. We embrace the false sweetness of the world, and we do it to our own destruction. So, so what is the answer then? This is the folly of the world, the folly of sexual sin. What is the answer that, that the Bible brings, that this proverb brings to us? Well, the answer is the same answer for all sin. The only answer is one of confession and repentance, and the only hope is that of the cross of Jesus. So our second point is this. Sexual healing is found only in Jesus. And we get two uh, kind of allusions to it in, uh, in this proverb itself. We're going to look first at verses 12 to 14. It reads uh, like this. And you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. So here we get a picture of someone finally recognizing the, uh, the, how foolish they've been, the depth of their sin, how they are, they are totally at a loss and, and they need help. You see there that they are uh, confessing this um, sort of in public. It says there in the assembled congregation. What we see here is the reality uh, of regret and the importance of confession, but not just to the people around us, also to God himself. And for this, we're going to jump to the last three verses of our, of our proverb Uh, Verses 21 to 23. It says, For a man's ways uh, are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. So here again, we see the acknowledgement of sin and the clarity that this person finally sees the way in which sin has really ensnared him, that, that that he needs help. He needs an answer but here we see that he's, he's saying it's my ways are before the Lord. That ultimately my sin is before God. Uh, famously, uh, King David, uh, who, who sinned sexually uh, with Bathsheba, another man's wife. In Psalm 51, he's writing a prayer of confession where he sees finally, he was blinded by his sin and foolishness, but finally he sees it clearly. He realizes the depth and, and the gravity of what he's done. But he writes these words in Psalm 51. He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me, against you, speaking to God, against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. It's not that David doesn't realize that he has hurt a lot of people with his sin and adultery. But but what he's recognizing is that ultimately this sin is before God. And ultimately he needs to appeal to God for grace and forgiveness, to, to find peace. And the good news is that that's exactly what what God offers. That at the cross of Jesus, we have forgiveness and grace and mercy in spite of all of our sin, even our sexual sin. So what we need to recognize, what I hope you hear this morning, is that though sexual sin is a weighty issue, a destructive force in our lives, there is an answer at the cross. That through Jesus, the one who was pure in every way, including sexually, he took on the condemnation of sin on himself. In a real way, Jesus experienced the sheol, the hell that we deserve on the cross, suffering physically and emotionally and spiritually. And he did it so that we could be free from the consequences of sin. There are, in fact, great benefits. There are amazing benefits for those that believe this, for those who call themselves Christians, recognize, indeed, this is true, that he, Jesus didn't just dis- 
just die. He rose again. He demonstrated that he has victory and conquered all sin, all death on our behalf. And because of that, then those who have faith in him, we we know that we are saved from those consequences. We also can know that that we can have healing. We, We can find healing in Christ for all the things that we've done and all the things that have been done to us because we are now made new in Christ. That's that's the beauty that we find in the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says it this way, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, the beauty of the newness of the gospel is that through the ministry of the Spirit of God, through the truths of God's love for us, in spite of our sin, that we can find healing. In spite of the corruption of our past, And what that also means is that then we are free to enjoy sex as God has designed it. We are free to pursue God's wisdom for sexuality. That's going to be our third point. Third point. But before we get there, before we get there, I want to ask just, uh, I want to ask and answer one, one main question, which is this. Assuming that you believe this, assuming that you believe that Jesus has, has paid the price for your sin and that you're, you're seeking, you know, uh, healing and help and restoration there but you still struggle with sexual sin, what should you do? How should you, what are the next practical steps that you should make if, if you're sitting here today and you're saying, I know this is an issue, I know I need to deal with it. I want to I talk in three ways. Number one, what should you do if you still struggle with sexual sin and you are married? You need to come clean. The only way that you will ever have a, a genuine, healthy, and, and satisfying and joyful marriage is, is one where there's honesty and there, when there's confession of sin. It will be one of the hardest things that you've ever done, but it will be a first step on a road to true intimacy with your husband or with your wife. If this is something you know you need to do, you need to do it soon. Don't wait on it. And if you need help, know that, that I'm here, that Amy's here, Tim, Nuance Staff here, all of us would love to walk with this, walk with you through this. It's the only way that you're going to find peace in your life is to come clean. That's the first thing. Secondly, if you struggle with porn and lust, uh, you need to tell someone. The lie of sin is that you can handle it on your own. But you've been trying to do that for years. It hasn't worked. We are designed as the church to be in community and to shoulder each other's burdens. And that means being vulnerable, confessing sin, telling people, I need help with this. I need you to pray for me. I need you to keep me accountable. We have a men's group that meets on Tuesday evenings, uh, which deals specifically with issues of porn and and lust. Ben Gad leads that. He's not here today, but you can find the information on the website. Email him. Uh, It's on this Tuesday. You should come. You you should get the help that you need, that we all need to walk through sin. We need help. We need friends. We need people who know our story and can pray for us. Thirdly, if you are single, you need to be choosy. Uh, Maybe a better word would have been discerning or would have been careful. Uh, by that I mean that this advice from a father to a son, this is real advice. He's saying, look, there are some, some girls out there that you shouldn't date. There's some guys out there that you shouldn't date uh, because they don't, they don't agree with you about the big things in life, about who God is, who Jesus is, about what sex should be. You need to be choosy. You need to ask more questions rather, you know, not just what movie do you like, do you like to kayak? Do you like sunsets? Like, you need to ask more questions. So here are some questions I'm going to suggest that you ask uh, of a potential person you're going to date, you know, when you're 25. Um, 
Here's some questions you should ask. Do you, do you believe in God? Do you know who Jesus is? Do you, do you read the Bible? Do you have a Bible? Do you read the Bible? Do you actually think that it should shape the way that you live? Do you have any convictions about biblical sexuality? What do you think about that? Do you actually want to live them out? All of these are first date questions, I think, right? That's probably what you want in first date. But honestly, you shouldn't go too far down any road without getting some of these big issues clear. That's really what he's saying. Look, there are those that seem cute and nice and fun. You have a great time with them, but ultimately, that's not going to be sweet for you. It's going to be bitter. Okay. So our third point, now that we've seen uh, the foolishness of sexual sin is all around us in our own hearts, in the world, and also the answer to it in Christ, now that we have the, the difficulty answered, what, what is it that is God's wisdom for sex? What does he say about it and how we should experience it? Uh, Point number three, God's wisdom for sex truly satisfies, and I'm going to give it to you. What is his wisdom? It's this, that we should enjoy immense physical pleasure exclusively with our husband or our wife. Immense pleasure with our husband or wife that we have there the form of godly sexuality and also the freedom in it. And we see this in our proverb. We're going to look at the last uh, bit together. Verses 14 to 17 He gives a a metaphor, a picture, and it goes like this. He says to his son, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Now what he's doing there is he's speaking about uh, his son's future marriage. We see that in the next passage. We're going to read in a moment. And what what he's saying there is that you should drink water only from your own cistern. That's the form of godly wisdom for sexuality. You and your wife together. He's saying, look, there's a, there's a natural thirst that comes sexually for all of us. It's a natural thing. It's a God-ordained thing. He made us that way. It's for all of us. There's one good place for that thirst to be quenched. And that is in marriage. That's the picture of the cistern or the well. The well, you'll notice, is proprietary. It's not public. It belongs to the couple. It's not for public use. In fact, the command is that the water from that well not be scattered abroad. That's the form of God's wisdom for sex. Human sexual desire is a good thing, a beautiful thing, and God has designed that it would be fully enjoyed in marriage. Now, now here's the key. This is not meant to restrict our pleasure, but rather to heighten it. See, the foolishness of the world would say that the greater enjoyment will come when you have sex with as many people as possible. But what we see in the pages of Scripture and in the world, if we look closely, is that that only leads to a lack of satisfaction and bitterness and heartache. What this father is saying to his son is that true satisfaction comes from enjoying sex within the context of marriage because it is a place of vulnerability of genuine intimacy, of safety, and long-term commitment. That is God's design. Not that he wants to hinder our enjoyment, but that he wants it to grow. So, understanding that form then of of God's wisdom for sex, let's look at the freedom. And so we're all going to take a deep breath. I'm going to read verses 18 to 20. He says this, Let your fountain be blessed, and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe, Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? 
So clearly, this is a picture of overwhelming, overflowing sexual enjoyment between a husband and a wife. What we have to simply acknowledge is that this was part of God's design for sex from the very beginning. It's not just for kids, not just a marital duty, not just something you have to do. It is something that is designed to simply be enjoyable. Notice the word there he uses is intoxicated. Married couples are to be drunk with love for each other. And if you want even more of this, go to the Song of Solomon, the book that in Jewish circles, 13-year-old boys were not allowed to read this book. You had to be older than that. That's how candid it is. So this is God's design for sex. Why? Because it increases relational intimacy. It serves to further unite a couple together. It protects them from the temptation of sexual sin. And simply because God loves to give good gifts to his children. See, God knew what he was doing when he created sex. And if we are to truly enjoy it, then we need to, we need to seek and follow his wisdom for it. So, I want to cap it off by asking a few final questions about this. So, assuming that we've grasped the, the truth, that in fact the, the, the highest pleasure will come for us in a committed marriage relationship where we can know each other, pursue each other physically, emotionally, all of that. If the best sex of our life is going to be in marriage, then I have a few questions. Number one, why would you ever throw all of that away? That's really the last question that the father asks. If you look in verse 20, he says, why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? But notice his question here. His question isn't, why wouldn't you obey God? Why wouldn't you obey me? Why are you doing a bad thing? That's not his question. His question is, why would you hinder your joy? Like, why would you minimize your pleasure by having a one-night stand, by having some momentary sweetness when God is offering you an increasing sweetness for the rest of your life? Why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense. He's saying the only way, the best way that you will truly enjoy this gift of God is in the way that God has commanded it. Otherwise, you will eventually experience bitterness. It may be days away, maybe weeks or months or years away. But anything that is outside of God's design, it will not lead to ultimate sweetness. And there are some of us here that need to hear that because we're toying with certain other options of sexual expression that is going to ruin our marriage. We need to see God saying, not just obey me, he's saying, I want the best for you. I love you. That's the first thing. Why would you throw it all away? Secondly, if... If sex is best in marriage, why wouldn't you wait? The percentage of dating couples that sleep together, uh, even within the church, is higher than ever. But the truth is that premarital sex will only hinder your enjoyment of sex. Firstly, because sin always hinders our joy. It draws us farther away from God. It draws us farther away from each other. What will happen is, if you pursue this kind of relationship with someone who's not, you're not married to is one, you will break up and then you will regret it. Or two, you will get married and you will really struggle to have genuine intimacy because your relationship will have had sin there at the start. You'll have to work through that. And it will take years. Don and I had done um, marriage ministry, um, you know, preparing for marriage ministry for a number of years and that always is a challenge for many, many couples. They, they have to work through that as they are supposed to be sort of entering into this physical union for the first time together. 
So why wouldn't you wait for that which God says is best and most fulfilling? Waiting for sex and marriage opens the doorway to true satisfaction. Now you might say, um, you know, Matt, I, I'm, not, I'm not really sure that marriage is in the cards for me. I'm thinking that it may be that God has called me to singleness. And so what, what does this proverb have to say to me? Well, I, I would say, that, say this, God's wisdom for sex still gives you a blueprint for joy. Because, because all of this pleasure and enjoyment that God has woven into marriage is only a foretaste of the pleasures of heaven. Do you realize that none of us will be married in heaven? And do you realize this, that the, the highest joys that we have here on earth, including sexual joys, they are just a glimmer of the daily joys and pleasure and satisfactions of heaven. So all of us, all of us should be anticipating greater joys, no matter if we're married or we're single. But if we are single, then we have the opportunity to, to pursue those greater joys here and now. That is part of God's design for humanity as a whole. So, the third thing, third question I want to ask, in light of the fact that we've seen that sex and marriage is the very best, why wouldn't you work for it? The danger of unpacking God's wisdom and design for fantastic sex and marriage is that uh, there are some here who will feel deeply saddened because that's not the reality of their marriage. The truth is that Great sex happens when there is great relationship. And if you find yourself in a position where one of those two things is, is you're frustrated because they're not healthy, they're not vibrant, they're not, they're not happening, you may feel apart from your spouse relationally, and so also you're apart from yourself physically. What this is designed to do, God's, God's view and wisdom for sex, is to motivate married couples to pursue greater relationship, to pursue each other, to do the work of marriage the day-in, day-out work of forgiving, of showing grace, of, of finding ways to better understand each other and know each other, to serve each other. It's, if you think about it, it's the same kind of work that Jesus has done for us on the cross. It's the, the gracious work of extending our lives for someone else. And with Jesus, there was great joy at the end of the cross. The joy of, of the church being united with the Father, the joy of intimacy with him, and there is great joy that comes to those who work hard at their marriage again and again and again, more counseling, more conversations, more prayer, with the mindset that, man, God, God is at work here. It's not just me talking. It's not just me serving again, doing the dishes again. It's in prayer saying, Lord, I, I know that you want to shape me and you want to shape her or him to be more gracious, to be more loving, and that through that there will be greater pleasure, emotional union, and physical union that will come from that. My hope is that, that this picture that's given here in this proverb will, will motivate you to show grace, to get help, whatever it takes, not just for the physical pleasure, but for the, the joy of being truly united as husband and wife, which, which is a lifelong pursuit. And it should be worthwhile enough for us to pursue the whole of our lives. So, so we've seen both the pitfalls of the foolishness of the world and hopefully also the, the wisdom that God gives to us in our sexual intimacy. It's been awkward, yes, but hopefully it's been helpful. 
And really my hope is that this proverb would indeed convict some of us and encourage many of us to pursue that which God says is best. Let me pray for us. Lord God, thank you for for everything that you give us, Lord, as human beings. God, in your word, there is no area of humanity that you leave uncovered. You, You reveal all of it. You reveal your wisdom for all of it. And thank you, Jesus, that you provide a way for us to find peace and wholeness in spite of our sin. God, I pray for everyone here. I pray for us, Lord, regardless of where we are, that you would, that you would make clear in our minds the fact that you really love us and that you have built us and wired us in such a way that we would, we would be able to find great joy both on this earth and certainly in, in the life to come. And so I pray, Lord, for those that need to confess sexual sin, Lord, you give them the courage to do it. And I pray also, Lord, for those that are being confessed too, would you, would you, give, them the, would you give them the strength to be gracious, to be forgiving? I pray, Lord, that from this there will be a strengthening in the marriages of our church. And Lord, also that you would help each one of us to pursue sexual purity and sexual joy as you have designed it to be. Thank you for your love, Lord. I pray that we would be greatly encouraged by it today. In Jesus' name, amen.